Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. It's time for Tim. The Tim Weisberg Show on 1420 WBSM and streaming live on WBSM.com and the WBSM app. Talk to Tim now at 508-996-0500 or send him a message through the WBSM app. And now, WBSM's big gun, Tim Weisberg. And good morning. Welcome into the program. Happy Friday to you. And we've got a full show for you this morning. Uh, because uh, we're going to be joined later on by New Bedford City Council President Linda Morad. And joining her today will be Councilor-at-Large Shane Burgos. So we're going to talk more about certainly the housing issue in that hour, but we're going to spend the entire first hour today talking about it with Josh Amaral, who is the Director of the Office of Housing and Community Development for the City of New Bedford. We're going to be talking about the new comprehensive housing plan that came out earlier this week. And uh, we talked a bit about it with the mayor, but we can get a little bit more in-depth with it now with Josh. And, and, and you know, I heard you and Phil talking um, in the crossover there, and, and, and he asked, like, are we going to solve this housing crisis? And I guess that's the question that is on everybody's mind these days. Good morning, Tim. It's a pleasure to be here, so I appreciate the opportunity and you're right, and Phil's right. Um, you know, just because you release a plan doesn't necessarily solve the problem. So the question of, you know, how do we translate this into action is really where the key is. So I'm really excited to get the plan out there. I, I think it's a bold plan. I think it's a strong plan. And um, I think it positions New Bedford well to respond to the housing crisis, to the housing shortage. Um, everybody in America pretty much is dealing with this problem. Certainly, every municipality in Massachusetts is dealing with this problem uh, as what I would argue is a, is a result of the outgrowth of, of sort of the gilded age of the metro Boston area. So um, as, as industry is established in Boston, uh, as dynamics have changed there, it's really pushed people out of Boston to the, to the suburbs, to the cities in, in that orbit. And that's, had, that's reverberated all around, all around the state and um, certainly has impacted us here in New Bedford. So every community needs to figure out what solutions are best for it and, and what their local context is and how they best respond to these challenges. And in putting this plan together, we looked at, you know, what are the, what are the best levers out there that we could pull to have the most impact here in New Bedford? And, and I think that we settled on, on, on um, you know, I, I said this at the press conference, we, we have to throw sort of the kitchen sink at it. So take what works in other places uh, that we think will work here, put it together in a plan and, and, and execute. So. We, I had mentioned this to the mayor, though. Uh, to be fair, a lot of these um, steps are things that have been put in place over recent years. So this isn't this isn't just a decision now to put a plan together to work on this. This is an issue that the city has been tackling already going along a number of years. It's just adding more tools in the toolbox. I think a lot more. I mean, I'd be remiss to say that, like, you know, this is all new stuff, right? It, mm -hmm. it, 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 there are definitely things in there that we've done before. You know, we've had rental assistance programs. We've had financial assistance programs for people. We've, we've attempted to recruit development to the city and to try to add more units of housing. 
I think the things that we do in the plan really accelerate that. So whether it's adding more funding, trying to leverage additional resources, trying to tweak the design of certain programs to work better for people, or, you know, really redoubling our efforts to figure out what is it that will allow us to, to build more housing. So ultimately, we, we, I think there's a, a wide consensus that uh, the housing challenges that we are experiencing are a supply and demand problem. So it's like a game of musical chairs. If you have a lot of chairs and a few people, no problem, right? The game is pretty easy. However, uh, when you've got a lot of people in very few chairs, suddenly some people are kind of left out, right? It's the same with housing. So if you've got 10 apartments available and you've got 500 people that want to move into them, you've got a bidding war that takes place. You're constantly resetting the market. Other landlords are looking at their units and saying, I could charge more for my unit because they're getting more for their unit over there. And it just sort of spirals. And that's not just isolated to New Bedford. That's New Bedford, Dartmouth, Haven, Cushnet. That's Boston. That's Wellesley. That's everywhere uh, all throughout the state. So we have our, our little small sliver of it. And I think, um, I think for us, uh, the reality is we haven't built enough housing to keep up with the increased demand. And so... Uh, it's it's incumbent upon us to try to figure out how we can how, how we can rectify that problem as quickly as possible. You, you talked a little bit about and callers, hang on, we we will get to you. Uh, but we talked a little bit about there about what is causing there to be a need for more housing. Of course, you probably hear the phone calls that come into the station. There's a lot of people. Well, it's all the influx of illegal immigrants coming in, or all these different factors that people think that it is. But in actuality, this is a problem everywhere because people are. First of all, I think part of it is probably the pandemic made people realize they don't need to live in those metro areas to do the jobs that they were doing. So now you have people that are coming down to this area looking to buy a home who can spend a lot of money because they were paying a lot of money for an apartment up in Boston. So they can buy these more expensive houses, which therefore will you know pay, pay these higher prices, which will drive the prices up of all the properties. Yeah, I think there's there's a bunch of different factors like that that, that come into play. There are people who work in Boston uh, that, that are able to live in New Bedford because the commute's different. They work remotely or they work only a few days a week in the office. I think you've seen that even, even in a more nuanced way where people from the Boston area uh, are are displaced over housing costs to a place like Brockton. And now in Brockton, an apartment might be $3,000. And so people couldn't afford that and they're displaced to New Bedford. And now they're competing with New Bedford residents for the same units. I think that's that's like the story of the game in, in Massachusetts. It's a story in New York and California and, and, and all, throughout the, all throughout the country. So there are a number of different things coming into play. I know I've talked to a lot of people who um, their theory is that it's related to the to the intercity rail connection. Uh, maybe that's, that's got some, some role in the investment. I, I don't know for sure, you know, kind of remains to be seen how that, how that plays out, how well traffic that is and everything. Um, but I, I think you're right. I think the, the pandemic has been a huge factor in that um, it's been difficult to build during the pandemic because construction costs have gone through the roof because of supply chain issues, because of the, the, the war in Ukraine has driven up the cost of steel and concrete and things like that. Um, so the, the ability to build everywhere has been constrained uh, resulting with some of those factors. There was also this eviction moratorium in place um, for a long time. And in fact, there's still talk about, you know, extending some of these pandemic era um, support programs for people who've, who who fell behind on their rent. And, and you know, I've supported those programs by and large, but they've had an impact on the housing market in that people have largely been frozen in place for three years. And so you don't have the same fluidity within the market that you would have had uh, previously. So um, a lot of different, a lot of different factors contributing to that. I have heard some of those calls that have come in, you know, that theorize that it's it's about immigration, and I don't think we see that necessarily as the problem. Certainly, um, anecdotally, I don't hear many stories like that, and um, and 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 objectively, the population of the city hasn't increased all that much, um, right. even even counting uh, new residents. And I, I would say that the 
the few thousand people that we counted in the last census above what it was previously is more attributable, more attributable to some of the factors we're talking about, people moving around Massachusetts as opposed to um, from other countries and things like that. You mentioned the train. I also love the fact that we have, we have people who will call up and say, you know, the train is going to ruin this. The train is going to push people out of their homes, the train, the train. And then they'll also call them the next day and say, but nobody's going to ride the train. <laughs> yeah, it's, it, it's emblematic of a lot of things, though, that we talk about where... Um, Everybody wants progress. We all want good things for our community. I'm born and raised in New Bedford. I love this place. I want the best for it. And that's, I mean, dedicated basically my career and life to that. Um, but as you make progress, it comes with growing pains. It comes with challenges. And then that's why we have to go back to the table and the, and the whiteboard and, and say, what are we doing to, to mitigate the impacts of this and make sure that this makes sense for our residents, make sure this, this is um, working for everybody. And so uh, I think that's what we've done here in the plan. And I'm, I'm excited about it. Well, I want to dive more into it, but let's let's take this phone call here. And if you have any questions for Josh during the discussion, 508-996-0500 or hit us up on App Chat on the WBSM app. Good morning. You are on with Josh Amaral. Hello. Yeah, good morning. Can you hear me? Yes. Yeah, just you, you brought up some interesting points uh, about the Boston people coming down and things of that nature. But let me ask you a question, and, and, and uh, I really don't know the answer. I, I really don't think anybody really has the answer, but... Uh, what is our population in New Bedford right now? Do you have any idea? It's about 101,000 as of the last census. Okay. And where was it 10 years ago? I think it was in the high 90s. Right. And I, I, some something tells me it was around 100,000 around that time as well. Yeah. So what, what I'm having a hard time understanding is if we didn't have a, and, and I'm sure you probably have the answers for this, but. If we didn't have a housing crisis 10 years ago with 100,000 people, and we had currently still have 100,000 people, I, I know we're not talking about immigration, and I'm not a big person about immigration in terms of, you know, the pros and the cons of it and all that, but I don't really think we know how many people are in New Bedford that are immigrants that we have no idea because it doesn't come up on the census. And I really think it may have an impact, not that it's the, the, the total reason, but I, I got to believe that there's got to be twenty to 25,000 people in here based on talking to various people that, that have come like from other countries that we don't even know about. That, that sounds like a lot. Because they don't appear on a census. I mean, in the last census, one of the one of the real goals of it was to do a better job of counting the people that were here. So, I agree. you know, we, we agree. did increase population size by a few thousand in that time. Now, I, right. to reflect it back to housing, I would say even small swings, a few thousand here or there could have a huge impact when we haven't built enough to keep up with it. So in the course of the last decade, we've added a few hundred units of housing in the city. But if the population has gone up a couple thousand... Um, I would also say, you know, the census was as of 2020. That's three years ago. Is it largely before the, the pandemic. Um, things have changed pretty rapidly in that time span. And, and in fact, I mean, the housing crisis has really kind of unfolded, I think, in New Bedford in that three-year gap. So we see a lot of intercity movement, a lot of competition for units from people from Fall River and Brockton, and, and I think probably competition for units in those cities from residents in New Bedford as well. So you're seeing an increase in people just looking to go where they can afford to live. And, um, and and not so much uh, shopping in their own backyard, so to speak. Um, and so all that's related to affordability, demand, supply, and, and so forth. And um, all the more reason for us to prioritize building new units so that there are enough, um, to go back to my musical chairs metaphor, there's enough seats uh, for all the players of the game. 
Right. So I, I get that, and, and you're and you're right about building new new uh, places because, I mean, if you go back years and years ago, obviously they were building three decades like they were going out of style. Yeah. And that's that's past. You know, that's come and gone. And now we're into apartment complexes and so on and so forth, refurbishing new mills, old mills, I mean, and things of that nature. I, I just I don't think we, and this is nationwide, okay. And like I said, I don't think we have a handle on the population. In terms of how many we do have here, I, I think you know we don't want to be categorized as a you know as a sanctuary city or whatever the case may be. But I just think that when you see these numbers of, of the immigrants coming over, they're going places and throughout the country, and and I think it's it's really put a burden on the on the on the cities and towns to absorb these people, uh, and I don't think. Anybody really wants to talk about that? I, I'm not saying that's well, the, the sole reason. Don't get me wrong, but it's a part of it, and I don't think we speak enough for that part. Is all I'm saying. I'm, I'm not going to say that I don't want to talk about it, but I'm going to hold you there because I got some other callers. But thank you so much. You have a good day. It's uh, as I'm looking at the break here. I want to be able to get some calls in because we do have a lot to discuss with Josh. Good morning. You were on with Josh Amaral. Hello. Hi. Good morning. How you doing, Chad? Good morning. Yeah, I really think myself. Um, who's who's going to build all these housing? Who's going to build all the housing that you want to take care of? Well, I mean, well, go ahead. No, I'll answer it. Uh, so, the answer is 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 developers that specialize in this. We have a few developers that have that have taken an interest in New Bedford for one reason or another. Either they've they're from here, or they've got a connection to the community, and uh, those have largely been the ones that have been successful in recent years in getting their projects off the ground. So we have uh, we talk about it in the plan. There's 150 units that we have in the in the in progress right now in mostly in the downtown area, um, and three quarters of those units are income restricted. So they're they're essentially subsidized and, and will be available at at, um, at below market rents for for people. So that should help with the affordability challenge. We didn't address this in the plan, but there are, I would estimate about a hundred units also in the pipeline that are coming online, various uh, various formats. They're working their way through permitting and planning at the moment. So if you add that up together, you have two hundred fifty units. Um, I can think of you know right off the top of my head a, a mill building that that has been permitted in the past for 200 housing units that uh, has not been developed but re- represents a development opportunity. Uh, I listened the other day. I think it was Barry Sylvia, a, a common caller to the to the shows here at WBSM, who mentioned that there were some hundred mills in the city, and um, some of them had have been developed. Obviously, some of them had been knocked down, but there are still a lot of them that represent development opportunities. In the plan, we mention old schools as another example. So New Bedford has. Um, a, a large number of old sort of red brick elementary schools built in the early 1900s. And those are going to be, you've seen news recently about plans to replace some of the Congdon Duvall's building, some of the Ashley Swift building. And um, as those buildings come offline for school use, I think they represent potential housing development opportunities. And each one might be, you know, 15 units of housing. But you add these up over time um, and, and, and you start to get at it. I mentioned earlier. That uh, wasn't the question I wanted. The question I wanted answered: Who's going to own them? Who's going well, to he, own? He answered that right at the top buildings. of the answer when he said that there are developers who specialize in this that they're talking to. No, who's going to own the buildings in the city? What 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 are you looking for for an answer? Somebody's got to make money off of these schools. The city isn't going to make money. Somebody's going to make money. The city will make money when they're sold. Oh come on. 
Well, beyond but that, the, I tell you, the city talk of... about politicians. You're all doing the same thing. You're double talking. Uh, uh, all right, all right, all right. enough. Okay, we, let, let's uh, let's let's save this for some people that have some actual questions instead of just yeah, grandstanding right. on a point. Thanks. But just to, I mean, just to address it real quick, Tim. I mean, we think that the problem is that we don't have enough housing units. We need to build more housing units. Um, we need to recruit developers. The mayor said it at the press conference the other day. Um, we're not Boston. We're not Worcester where uh, developers have readily gone there and they're making money hand over fist, uh, developing every opportunity they can. Developments in New Bedford barely pencil out, right? Which is the industry term, you know, here's what it costs to build, here's what the rents are gonna be. Um, that's the biggest challenge that we have is um, we have to convince a developer to come here even though it might not be as lucrative to develop in New Bedford as it is in another place. These are for-profit entities by and large and they wanna make money. And uh, to the extent that they're solving our problem, we don't oppose them, you know, turning a profit on their on their development. Um, so we get a hustle to attract them to come here for very thin, very thin margins. And part of our plan is reducing barriers to permitting, fast tracking projects along through the planning pipeline so uh, they can get to work faster. If you put yourself in their shoes, they're outlaying tons and tons of money to buy a property, uh, pay for architectural fees, design, engineering, all the things that go into it, and then they're paying property taxes while they carry this project throughout. So a housing development, like a, a mill complex, like I mentioned, that's like a three-year project from start to finish under the best possible circumstances. There's a lot of money along that three-year window. So what developers, what we hear, what they want is predictability. They want to know that a project is going to be consistent. It's going to move through every every step of the, ch the chain sort of expeditiously so they can expect that they're going to see it through from, from, from beginning to end. The worst case scenario is a project begins, a bunch of money gets gets put out there, and then three quarters of the way through the, pro the process, it's determined that the project doesn't work. Um, so we have to try to remove the red tape involved in that and, and help people build the types of projects that we that we need here in the city. So um, we're not we're not opposed to, to to the private market contributing to solutions here. At the same time, we have a strategy in here to encourage nonprofits and small developers that don't have quite the same profit motives to take on some of the projects that won't turn a profit. We're talking single uh, parcels. Uh, vacant abandoned buildings, uh, small houses. If I'm a developer that develops mill complexes into 200 housing units, I'm not that receptive when Josh Amaral calls me and says, you know, we have a boarded up house that caught fire three years ago and I'd like somebody to bring it back online because it's, it's not going to be a profitable endeavor. But we do have nonprofit developers that take those projects on and then turn them over to first time home buyers or turn them over to affordable rental units. And, and we'd like to see that development as well. All right. Well, callers, hang on, because I got to take a break. So let me do that. When we come back, we can take your calls and more with Josh Amaral when we return. And just a and welcome back. We were talking this morning with Josh Amaral. He is the director of the Office of Housing and Community Development for the city of New Bedford. And we are taking your phone calls on the city's new comprehensive housing plan. We're going to dive more deeply into it, but we do have a couple calls here. Good morning. You were on with Josh. Hello. Hey, good morning. I have a question. Uh, I know, you know, me being part of like the building, um, I know when it was Phillips Avenue School, they couldn't put a 19-unit house in that little project because of all the red tape. Yeah. And uh, how, how are you? How is the city going to do? Um, going to uh, revisit that with all the red tape and you know getting the developers in here? Uh, like say, like say, you got a building, one of these old buildings, and it needs to be knocked down. How how the city going to get the EPA down there because that's full of asbestos most likely to knock it down and um, it's going to be a very very expensive uh, project just to knock down that building uh, only a reason because of the dust 
you know, accumulating right. when you knock it down. Sure. Yeah. How, how is the city going to get the EPA uh, and the red tape out of out of the developers? Because obviously, they're going to, you know, when you see EPA in there, you know, they're going to shut them down. They're going to make them. Well, I find. Uh, hold on. Let Josh I, answer. I, I find that most developers are are willing to to take on some of those items for us and. I'm glad you bring up the Phillips Avenue school example. So I think if that project were proposed today in the context of the housing crisis that we are experiencing now, I'd like to think it would have gone differently. So back then, the, the I mean, housing was a need back when that, that project was in the works. And, um, I, you know, in hindsight, I, I, I certainly wish that that had come to fruition. Um, but if that were proposed again today, I would hope we'd have a little bit more momentum to see that through. So some of the issues that bogged that one down were were parking. Uh, people parked at the school site and they didn't want to see it used for housing because they'd lose their parking spaces in a tightly packed neighborhood. Um, and then there were some competing views for what the, the building should be used for. There was talk of using it like as a community center, as sort of nonprofit space, which, you know, is well intended and certainly certainly productive use. But um, it, it doesn't work financially. There's just no money to support that kind of project. But um, if a developer were, were to call me today, and please, if there's anybody listening, please do so uh, with interest in the Phillips Avenue school, we'd love to see that project go. Um, we wouldn't tear it down. We are interested in, in, in keeping some of the historic elements of the city. And so a project like that, while the, while the building would need a ton of work, I'm sure there are you know, lead, asbestos, uh, environmental concerns that would re- would require cleanup. Developers would would take that on, and so we see a model with some of these red brick school buildings where you essentially gut the inside of them. I mean, they have to be totally reconfigured anyway because there were these big classrooms, right? That many of us remember, and um, and you repurpose right. them into apartments. You get to run plumbing, you get to run gas lines and and and, and electricity throughout the building uh, in ways that weren't there before. But some of those old school buildings represent the best development opportunities for us in that um, they have built-in parking on the grounds, by and large. Uh, you could do green space in those sites. Um, the, the buildings themselves have some historic elements, so developers are able to leverage what are called historic tax credits. Um, so to keep historic buildings vibrant and in productive use, um, there are federal subsidies available that allow you to, that allow you to do some of that work, and that, that helps defray the cost of doing some of that environmental work you're talking about. The Dunbar School actually is, um, I think it was just approved by the planning board and it's going to continue to work through the, the process, but Dunbar School, St. Mary's Home on Kempton Street, another building similar to that. These are some old buildings that are that are proposed to be repurposed for housing, and um, I, I think of a school like Phillips Avenue as another opportunity. Kempton School, Taylor School in the South End. We've got a few of these, um, and we're going to have more coming as the school department replaces their buildings over time. And uh, I think I think we we we'd be we'd be missing opportunities to add units uh, in areas that sorely need them if we um, if we forego those opportunities. All right, thank you for the call. I just got to have the callers who are uh, calling in just you know ask a, a direct question so that we get a lot we want to cover in the time that we have. But let me also say you'll be back on Wednesday on yep. South Coast tonight, so you'll talk a little bit, and that's why I'm taking calls because I know that you know sometimes they don't like to take so many calls during yep. the discussions. Uh, let's go to this line. You're next on WBSM. Hello. Hello. Good morning, gentlemen. I'll make mine quick. Basically, two points I want to make. One, I agree that the empty schools are a good use for turning into apartments. But as we've seen in the past, especially the school on uh, Shawman Avenue, the uh, city council didn't really have the <clears throat> stamina to actually to, to approve the conversion because the neighbors, as you pointed out, said they wanted parking space. Even though it's uh, city property, I thought that was a mistake. The city council should have uh, allowed that to have gone through. And the other comment I make, 
I'd like to make is I, I agree there's a need for city parking, and I've kind of looked at the mayor's proposal. What I'm not in favor of is dumping any more vehicles on our streets because parking is already tough as it is. And to me, that's a big concern along we, with finding housing. Yeah. You've got to create housing. But, you know, once it gets to fall and winter time, it becomes a real issue here. No, and as you said, totally so agree. Oh, hold on. Let, let's get Josh's it, response. Totally agree. I, I think um, I think I, I, I heard a call like that yesterday. I don't know if it's the same caller um, talking about that element of the plan. So one of the one of the red tape type uh, proposals that we put in the plan, and this will require uh, collaboration with the city council and, and our, our planning board uh, to, to see it through the planning department, is a potential reduction in, in parking minimums. So right now, if you come and propose a 20-unit uh, development in New Bedford for housing, each unit is required to have two parking spaces. Uh, what we've seen with the last few developments, these 150 units that are in the pipeline, some of the other ones coming, developers repeatedly come to the planning board and say, you know, the the structure of our building, the number of bedrooms, the number of people that are going to live here, we're, we don't need the two un- the two parking spaces per unit. Uh, we can we can we could do this with less. We could do this with with one and a half spaces per unit, for example. And and where the developer we are going to make or lose money depending on how this works with our tenants. We're not going to be able to get the rents that we want if tenants can't park their cars and stuff. So this works for us. Um, and so what we would propose is that instead of those things being exceptions that we have to consider, that those just be just be part of, of the, the regular routine. Another consideration in the plan, this is mentioned in the, the transit-oriented development zone, but also in that parking uh, example, is that when a housing development is within range of the train station or within range of public transportation, um, that parking would be less because you, you may potentially have tenants that are that are going to take public transportation options and not have cars. So even if you've got two adults living in a, in a place, maybe they have one car that they share and one person takes the train to work every day and they're able to, to swing it. Um, I would agree. We have to be thoughtful about, you know, inundating neighborhoods with cars. So uh, we want to avoid that issue. And so the Phillips Avenue school, that would being one of the main complaints in, in there, is not necessarily a, a great analog for that proposal. So we'd have to consider that maybe a little differently. Um, but the Dunbar school proposal, I think, is a solid one where, where they don't require two, two units, uh, two spaces per unit. Um, but uh, but the but the plan works and there's even places in the in the driveway space where they're going to have green space and make the site look really nice. So there are ways of doing it. Um, I think we're overly restrictive now. And uh, to some degree, that, that inhibits our ability to develop and tackle this crisis. And, and remember, the end goal this connects to is making New Bedford more livable for its residents, making housing more affordable and attainable for its residents. So the, the end user is who we have in mind. But every time we, we erect a barrier, we put in new requirements, we, we need more and more um, boxes to check to satisfy development. It makes it harder to produce the units that make it livable in the city. So we have to keep... Um, you know, our family members and friends and ourselves in mind when we see rents that are $1,500, $1,700 in the city, that is a direct correlation to the amount of red tape that we impose on, on, on housing development. All right, let's, uh, let's take one more call here. Thank you for your call. Let's take another one here before we have to go to a break. Good morning. You're next with Josh Hamrall. Good morning. Good morning, Josh. Good morning, Tom. Uh, first of all, congratulations on your appointment. I think the city uh, appointment here is the best uh, we've had uh, in quite some time. Thanks, Tom. Uh, having, having said that, uh, I have two questions. First, uh, the current funding uh, for the ESG home program that community development gets, is that still authorized through the federal McKinney Act or is that morphed into something else? Yes, we have ESG and, and uh, home uh, sort of entitlement allotments that come every year 
that are through um, McKinney. Right now, we have a, a, a separate bucket of home funds that are um, connected to the American Rescue Plan Act as well. Okay, second question and last one. Uh, is there any uh, housing development in the city uh, which would, uh, in the old days, they used to call it uh, cooperative housing, uh, where the tenants would basically own the building uh, as a cooperative? Do we have any of that in the city? I mean, we have more... Um there are some like sort of condominium type arrangements. Um, and, and someone was talking to me about that the other day as a potential solution. One of the things I like about it is the potential for someone to own their little corner of the world. So you, you might, it might be an apartment, but you own it, you're allowed to build equity in it. And, um, and over time you could use that to, you know, that's your, your, your starter home might be an apartment and then you're able to leverage that into a single family home down the line when you want that. I don't know if we have anything that that is called cooperative housing at the moment or, or in the, in the works like that, but we're open to novel approaches. I think one of the things that um, we want to make loud and clear in the plan is that the way to do this is pairing larger scale development along with all the types of development that can just add units in the margins, whether that's accessory dwelling units, whether that's condominiums, whether that's, um, you know, just anywhere we can add units of housing, it'll take pressure off of the market. And that's what we need to do desperately. Thank you very much. You're doing a great job. I, I'm sorry you got thrown into the frying pan here, but you're the guy that, that can handle it. I love it. Thank and, you uh, so much. Keep up the good work. Appreciate Thanks, it, Tom. And uh, we do have to take a break here. Why don't we do that? When we come back more with Josh, we'll take some more phone calls, and we'll talk some more about the comprehensive housing plan. But right now, we'll be taking a break and back in a few. And more with Josh Amaral. He is the director of the Office of Housing and Community Development for the city of New Bedford. We're talking about the city's comprehensive housing plan. We have some more callers there, but before we we take those calls, I want to at least work in a few of my own questions. So there's been a lot of discussion with the city council's ballot question about rent stabilization. Uh, the mayor has, you know, said it's just a euphemism for rent control and he vetoed it and he's spoken out against it. it and I'm sure you can kind of understand the gap that exists for people. You, you talk about it here in the plan, the difference between what people can afford to pay to buy a house and what houses cost, what they can afford to rent a house and what rents costs. So there's certainly a need there, but do you feel like this plan can mitigate any need to have any kind of rent stabilization? Yeah, I mean, we mentioned it in the plan that we we don't think that rent stabilization is the the most effective tool to combat what we're talking about. Um, you know, I, I certainly understand the intention behind it, and um, I see this plan as sort of transcending the politics on it a little bit. You know, I mean, we've worked on this for for a while. Um, there are twenty two unique proposals in it. A lot of them are based on best practices in other similar cities and, and across the state. And I think we'll have a, a much larger impact on on the, the housing supply in the short and long term. One of the issues with rent stabilization is that, you know, it puts New Bedford in league with Boston and some of those metro Boston areas that have talked about rent stabilization, rent control. And um, our market is fundamentally different than, than those places. So to the degree that it's difficult to attract development here as it is already, um, developers you know, see the discussion of rent stabilization as sort of toxic to them, right? And they, they come to the table not with the intention of gouging people or, 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 or doing anything like that, but they see it as increased burdens on reporting, you know, increased time spent calculating things, just, just more things, barriers for them to jump over to, to producing their projects. Um, so in Boston, they might, they might go through those hoops anyway because, you know, if there's money to be made there, the projects are, are, are lucrative. 
um, into Bedford, it's hard without rent stabilization, never mind with it. And um, so, you know, at the same time, we certainly understand the intention uh, behind the proposal. We get that people are frustrated and fed up with housing costs. And uh, I think that's part of the reason I'm, I'm even in this role and I'm in a position to deliver on this plan is we know that we need to, we need to get into this. Um, so these discussions have been ongoing uh, before the talk of the ballot questions. And, you know, I, I, um, you, you know, Tim, I was, I was an elected official in New Bedford for eight years. Um, so I'm familiar with the way that this all goes. I have tremendous relationships with our city councilors. You know, I respect that the work, the work that they do and, and, um, and, and understand the sort of the mechanics of how this all comes together at their level. Um, I wanted to come into this position and, and the mayor was intent on figuring out a way to respond to the housing challenges in our community. Before I worked for the city, I was in the nonprofit sector. I was advocating for uh, policies that, that make life easier for our renters. We were providing rental assistance to stabilize people through the pandemic. And um, I had written an op-ed maybe a year and a half ago about the need for New Bedford to really articulate its views on housing, put out a plan on housing. That was long before I ever knew that this position would open up and that I would do it. And, and part of my motivation for switching from what was a, a very good job in the nonprofit sector, I had you know, a lot of freedom to you know, impact areas that I wanted to do, was I thought I could impact this specific issue by coming to work for the city and trying to bridge the gap between all the different stakeholders uh, that, that make up this problem. So um, it's hard work, right? I mean, it's, it's tough to live in a space where people disagree with one another and we're trying to bring them together. The only way to implement everything that's in this plan is to get everybody kind of on the same page. And, um, you know, we mentioned some of the zoning and regulatory changes that's going to require collaboration between the administration, the city council, uh, the planning board, the zoning board of appeals, various entities within city government. And so we involved other city departments in the development of the plan and have some ongoing conversations about how we're going to operationalize it. Um, but you know, I'm, I'm probably giving you too long an answer to a pretty short question, but... Well, you talked about wanting to rise above the politics of all of this, and are you afraid that politics might get in the way of implementing some of these parts of the plan? There's a lot of things in the plan that we're, we're you know, we're going to do, right? Um, they're, in, they're in our purview already to, to get them done, whether that's, you know, some of the increased funding that we, we make available. Um, but my goal is to be collaborative. My goal is, to, you know, is to be open about this stuff and to try to build consensus. So what we propose in the plan, I think, is largely consensus-driven solutions. Everybody's agreed for a long time now um, that we need to build more housing units. Uh, everybody agrees that we need to make life more livable for people in the city. Everybody agrees we need a mix of affordable housing, subsidized housing, income-restricted housing, and market-rate housing um, for all income types across the board. Now, there are distinctions between, you know, how you might see it, how I might see it, how a third person might see it, and so on and so forth. And so, you know, navigating in that world and figuring out what works and building consensus even among the, 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 the small differences is important. But, um, but I think, you know, it's, it's um, I would argue it's hard to quibble with some of the things that we, we put forth in the proposal. And um, I look to the relationships I've established with city councilors over the last decade in terms of working with them and, and helping them to, to see the merits of what we put forward in the plan. And um, so I'll leave the politics of it to the people that are in elected positions and, and get into that stuff. Um, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a humble city servant at this point, Tim, and, uh, I'm here to do the work of the people in the city. And, um, and I, I'm, I'm the guy at the keyboard, you know, reading the trade publications on housing in, in Lynn, uh, in Revere and trying to figure out how we could make, make that our own here in, in the city of New Bedford and, and putting that together in a proposal. So I appreciate the support of the mayor and, 
in in putting these policies together and putting them forward um, as, as he has. Um, and I appreciate uh, and look forward to the opportunity to working with the, the council to, to collaborate where we can. And uh, why don't we take our final break of the hour right now? And that way there we can finish off with your phone calls. 508-996-0500. We'll be right back. All right. We're going to finish off the hour with Josh Amrall with your phone calls at 508-996-0500. Good morning. You are on with Josh. Hello. Hey, good afternoon. Good morning, gentlemen. Good morning. <laughs> getting ahead of myself. Hey, you start the day early. Uh, so how long have I been here, Tim? <laughs> Yeah, a few uh, a few things, uh, a few callers. I've been in and out, but a few uh, callers ago, they said, "Who's going to basically make the profit?" The people that are going to make the profit are the developers who are basically, uh, you know, putting the bill. Like they're taking the risk, they're putting in their, they're investing their money. Obviously, they should see some of the profit, but also. Uh, in terms of like, you know, developing these old schools, New Bedford at the end of the day is going to be the winner because you, those those properties are now going on the tax rolls. So That's they're right. going to be generating tax revenue rather than sitting there idle. It's, it's like a no brainer. Um, but my question is, like, in terms of these developers, uh, my concern is that people, it's going to be uh, developers that are out of town or so on and so forth. So what is the city going to do to kind of like, you know, a lot of times um, there's incentives like, uh, that people purchase homes who are going to be owner occupied. So uh, rather than uh, investment property. So there's like a time period that says, hey, if you're going to occupy the property, there's 21 days that we're accepting those offers prior to uh, people who are trying to buy the property to invest. So. What kind of, like, what are they going to do in terms of that? And then uh, quick, another quick question I have is we talk about affordable housing, but what does, like, in terms of rents, what does affordable housing mean in a sense in terms of dollar figures? Yeah. Because if you look at uh, Section 8 costs, so on and so forth, yep. nobody can afford those prices. And that basically what controls, you know, what kind of leads the way into what uh, landlords, private landlords are charging for rent. So what does that look like in terms of dollar amount? Yeah, let me sure. let me dig into that because I, I, I'm glad you brought up that, that, that point. And I, let me touch on the first part of your question too. Um, we see it the same way. We want to see New Bedford uh, people get the opportunity to develop. We want to see New Bedford people get the opportunity to work on development, whether it's it's local contractors, local people getting jobs doing construction, uh, local people that are going to own and occupy units. We know that owner-occupied units are generally better kept and, and better maintained and and build a sense of community in a way that other, other developments don't. So we agree on, on all those things. On the point of affordable housing, um, I almost wish um, that the the document that we put out had like a like a glossary, right? Because I talk to a lot of people who come to me and say the city needs more affordable housing, which means something different to everybody who hears it. Um, by and large, the people I talk to when they say that mean they want housing that they can afford, right? Which is kind of common sense. That right makes sense. What fits in my budget? A developer or certain government officials might hear affordable housing as like a term for a program, like Section Eight. Uh, the low-income housing tax credit is another form. Uh, there are a few different programs. They think of it as public subsidized housing. The city has a lot of units that fall into that category already. We say over 30% of rental units in the city 
have some form of public subsidy attached to them, whether it's housing authority units, Section 8 units, or other units that are assisted. Um, the income of residents, uh, the, the units are restricted to residents that have incomes below a certain level. And there's definitely a place for that in the market. One of the, the things that we say in the plan is there's increasing pressure on the city to add more units of housing. We should also have uh, we should also have a regional discussion about what that means in a place like Dartmouth, Fairhaven, Cushnet, et cetera. Um, are they building affordable housing? Are they building more housing units as well, multifamily housing units? These are largely places um, that have single-family homes almost exclusively. So that has to be part of the conversation. Um, in terms of dollar amounts, Section 8 in public housing is is generally capped at 30% of someone's income. So in order to live in those units, you have to make below a certain amount. And then 30% of whatever you're making is what you pay in rent. There are other units, these low-income housing tax credit units, where there are income restrictions to get in, but the rents are not necessarily driven by your income specifically. They're just set at, at whatever the market is. One of the challenges we see is that Section 8 vouchers are not so easy to use in the towns because those towns, uh, the, the units are, the rents are, 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 one, there are very few rental units available, and two, the rents are not eligible for those programs. They're above what, what um, the housing and urban development federal HUD department sets as fair market rents. So we've got a, a little bit of a, a regional equity problem in that where um, the, the vast, vast majority of low-income housing is, is in New Bedford and, um, and the, the towns have to be part of the solution in solving this problem. New Bedford can't, um, can't shoulder the load all, all itself. And so um, we're looking forward to working with our, our partners and stakeholders throughout the region to figure out what makes sense for us, as is the governor's office, by the way. Um, both Governor Baker and Governor Healy are proponents of the MBTA communities legislation, which says if you are in a town that abuts a community with MBTA uh, rail service, you are going to be required to develop multifamily housing. That's new. That's brand new. And it comes at the same time this plan is coming out. And so our pitch is why don't we devise what that looks like for our region collaboratively with our stakeholders in the towns rather than, than, than the town doing it for us or developers coming and, and being doctrinaire about what we should do. We should really sit down and, and leverage the collective strengths and resources of our, of our region uh, in figuring out something that makes sense for all of us. All right. Thank you for the call. Thank you. Have a good day. You know, you mentioned the MBTA uh, uh, plan there, and that's something that has caused a lot of controversy. Uh, people who feel like you're forcing these communities to, to build something that they shouldn't have to build. Yeah. I mean, I understand that perspective, right? I think it goes back to sort of a moral argument about where people are going to live in the state. And so if you look at a, an overview map of the state, you see very uh, highly developed, concentrated cities surrounded by very green swaths of towns. And, um, and it's a little bit exclusionary in that people are not able to move throughout the state in, in a great way. In a place like New Bedford that's largely built out, there's only so much we can do. We can redevelop schools. Maybe you could take a couple tenements and kind of smash them together and make something a little bit bigger. Uh, you can find vacant parcels. You can build a house on a vacant lot. You can reduce the minimum lot size so you could do that. But it's all marginal, um, right? The city has is, is got to be 90-something percent built out. Um, in towns, you get a little bit more space. And if you're exclusively zoned for single-family housing, we would argue that you're, you're not contributing enough. Um, you've seen really reflexive arguments. Some of them are a little ridiculous where... Towns have said, like, you know, well, if, if by having this train station in our town, we're subject to these new rules, why don't we just get rid of the train station, you know? And I think some of those things kind of give up the game a little bit. Yeah. So, um, you know, we're, we're doing our part. We want to do more than our part. We want to we be leaders in this. Um, we're not asking anybody to do anything we're not doing. Um, but we, we do see this as a problem that goes just uh, beyond the borders of any one place. 
All right, well, we only have about a minute left here, but we'll, I want to let everybody know that they can read the plan in its entirety by going to the city's website. It's, it's, it's beautifully laid out. It's very well laid out, easy to read. The charts, the graphs, it all makes sense, uh, so you can check it out there. You can also read it at WBSM.com and on our app in Kate's story uh, about the announcement. And, of course, you'll be back on Wednesday with Marcus and Chris to talk a little bit more about this as well. Yep, I appreciate the opportunity, Tim. Um, I think it's a good plan. I really stand behind it. I'm looking forward to working with everybody, whether that's town officials, city officials, other city departments, the mayor's office, so on and so forth. It has been a real professional honor to be able to take on the task of working on this plan and putting it out. Um, if you had told me a year and a half ago I'd be in a position to talk to you about this and this is where we'd be sitting, I would have told you I was dreaming. But, um, you know, I wish we had the plan then. The next best time to act on it is today. And so that's exactly what we're going to do. And, and I look forward to... Um, to work with everybody, and, and I appreciate the support that we've received so far. And we'll have you back to talk more about it as we go along as well. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.